scripture reading today comes from James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tony. Um, I missed um, a part of the um, the service, which is a tithes and offering. Um, uh, just briefly, uh, I just wanted to say thank you on on behalf of myself and the um, and the church to those who continue to give offerings. Your offerings really does help our our church grow, um, and it's doing God's work in spreading the gospel. Um, throughout this area, um, as well as as well as us uh, in our respective homes and work. So, um, thank you, and I encourage those who are members of the church to uh, continue to give. Whilst um, if you're visiting today, please don't feel compelled at all. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna quickly now uh, hand over to our pastor David, who will be uh, preaching on on the section of the Bible we just read. Good morning, guys. Um, I'm very sorry, but could I actually ask um, for us to do a bit of shuffling this morning? I realize there are a few people missing today, um, and it's just uh, I'd, I'd love for this front area to be filled. So maybe if you're in the back row, and I, I know you guys usually sit there in the back, you can come to the front today <laughs> for a change and could see your your eyes and your faces so um thanks guys yeah so we're in the book of James uh we're in chapter 3 um and I just want to remind you this book is uh really if you could sum it up with one word it's faith what is faith? You know, we throw that word around a lot as Christians. Um, what does faith do? What does it look like, really? What does it mean to have genuine faith as a Christian? And these are the questions that we're answering as we go through the book of James. And today, uh, we're looking at the topic of faith and wisdom, right? And wisdom is another one of those words that we, I think, might throw around a bit too much. Uh, and James is going to define for us what wisdom really is. And as I thought about how we could start talking about what wisdom is, uh, it brought me back to primary school days. Uh, in primary school, I was on the chess team, uh, and I loved it. Uh, we'd travel around every single week to different schools, and we'd uh, play chess on Friday afternoons against other students in these very intense uh, junior chess matches. 
And that was all good and fun, but every year at our school, we would have an annual chess competition. And one of my teammates would always win. He literally won every year. And so one year, I, um, I'm quite a competitive person by nature. I decided to go the extra mile. And so I went to the library and I borrowed all the books that had chess in the title. And I just read them all. I memorized a bunch of chess openings. And then I felt I was ready. And we met uh, this teammate and, and I in the quarterfinals. And I was like pumping myself up. I, I got this. I've got all the, the openings. And I sat there. And I was white, which means I move first. And I went through my head, and I was like, what, what should I do? What, should I, what chess opening should I pull out here? And uh, one came to mind called the Sicilian uh, defense. It's very tried, true and tested. And I busted it out. And then very early into the game, I took his queen. And I could smell blood. I was like, this is, this is it. I'm finally going to dethrone this guy. Uh, if you don't know, the queen is functionally the most important piece. So I took his queen. I felt really, really good. I was like, all those books paid off the many hours. And then he proceeded to checkmate me in six moves. And I couldn't believe it. My mouth was hanging open. And he went on, of course, to win the chess competition <laughs> again. It still hurts, uh, you know, 20-something years later. But here's what I learned. Um, chess is not just a game of facts and knowledge. It's a game of application. Um, and even if you read every single book out there on chess, uh, like me, and or I try to, and memorize every single opening, you need to actually be able to take that knowledge and apply it to the present situation to think about how the pieces work together on that chessboard. And you could say that I had much more facts and much more knowledge of the openings than my teammate. But he was able to apply himself uh, in the actual game a lot better than me. You could say that he was not just a smart chess player, but a wise chess player. And this is how the Bible talks about wisdom. Wisdom isn't just cerebral knowledge. Wisdom isn't just a great deal of accumulated experience, right? You think about, you know, whatever field you might be in, you know, whether that's in some corporate job or whether that is at home as a parent. And you think, I've got so much accumulated experience. I'm wise. But wisdom, according to the Bible, is not just knowledge and experience. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is applied. Wisdom works out in a changed life. And that means wisdom that isn't accompanied by a changed life is foolishness. And what this passage does is it tells us whether we're living as wise people or whether we're living as fools. I don't think any of us here likes to be called a fool, right? just makes me think of Mr. T. I pity the fool, right? No one wants to be called a fool. No one wants to be known as a fool. And yet this passage delineates the truly wise from the fools. This passage might confront us today and we might walk away thinking, oh, actually... I'm living as a fool. So how can you tell which one you are? Well, James starts by giving us the true test for wisdom, right? And that's my first point. What is the true test? Sorry, what is a test for true wisdom? Uh, it's a test like unlike any other. 
It's not a test that you have to wait for the results to come back from a board of examiners. It's not a test that you go into a room and sit down and you get top marks in. In verse 13, James tells us what this test is. This is what verse 13 says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Right? So that's a pretty basic, simple, clear question. Who's wise among you? And this is what he says. By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. And so James says, you want to know whether someone is really wise or not? Well, here's a test. This is a test. Look at their life. All right, look at their life. And, you know, for us, we live in Sydney in 2023. Um, I think it's a fairly metropolitan, uh, it's a quite an affluent um, time to be living in. And I think many of us have a lot of professional expertise and knowledge and that's good because those things are richly rewarded in Sydney in 2023. And so we look at each other in the same way. We look at each other's qualifications. We look at um, each other's carefully crafted CVs. But that doesn't mean you're wise. That's what James is saying. If you want to know whether someone is really wise, you don't need to check their CV. You don't need to have them pass some kind of interview or cognitive test, you don't need to see how much respect they'll pull in a room full of people. You know, that's a, that's a big thing that we care about. The test for whether someone is truly wise is look at their life. If you remember last week, James was talking about our words, our speech, and he said our speech is produced by the overflow of what's really go going on inside, like what's happening in our hearts. And continuing in that vein, James says, there's one sure test of true wisdom, and that's what you display in life, what happens in your life. And that's godly conduct. And James says wisdom is a living thing that's planted in our souls, and it has to work out in real change, real conduct, a real life. And so the track record of life, that's the that's a test for true wisdom. And James tells this to us. Why? So that we would become wise. That's the goal. And we wouldn't stay as fools. But then he goes on to tell us two types of wisdom after he's told us a test. And what he's doing is he's going one layer deeper than just telling us this is a test. He's going one layer deeper and he's unpacking two types of wisdom for us so that we can really dig deep and see which ones we are. Are we wise people or are we fools? And uh, just to make it very simple, these are the two types of wisdom that he sets out for us. One is wisdom from above and the other is wisdom from below. Easy enough, wisdom from above and wisdom from below. For our purposes, I'm going to call them, or one, um, heavenly wisdom, the wisdom from above, and hellish wisdom, the wisdom from below. Makes sense, right? So let me begin with hellish wisdom. And the way that James unpacks what hellish wisdom is for us is he kind of treats it like a medical diagnosis. He gives us a diagnosis, a genetic trait of sorts, and then the, the physical reaction. Okay, so try to follow along with me. Hellish wisdom. How do you diagnose it? First of all, verse 14, this is what he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. 
So bitter jealousy is the desire to have what someone else has for yourself, right? Straightforward enough. But that word for bitter here, bitter, is the same word that we find back in verse 12. So think about last week, James talking about speech coming from the heart in the same way that a saltwater pond can't produce fresh water. Uh, a, a heart that is sick, a heart that is not good, cannot produce good speech. And that word for salt water, pond, is also bitter. That's the same word here. And so in the same way, bitter jealousy or salty jealousy, that's something that comes from deep within. A bitter heart produces bitter jealousy. I think um, this kind of bitter jealousy, it sounds intense, but it's just salty jealousy. A a jealousy that comes from the heart, it can be found everywhere. It can be found amongst young children, young siblings who say, that's unfair. I hear that a lot, right? (laughs) Even amongst our kids. Uh, Amongst spouses who think as you're having a conflict, you're unfair. Why are you speaking to me like that? It happens in the office when one employee begins to feel that person's being treated better than I am. That's bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition speaks of a determination to get my own way. Originally, the word for selfish ambition here was used to describe a master who would go into town to find hired work, to find uh, hired hands. So selfish ambition here has the idea of co-opting other people to work for me. That's what James is talking about. To use other people to achieve what I want. Now notice this. Look at where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are found. James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. James's concern in this whole book, um, I hope you can see this, it, it's actually not really primarily about what's going on on the surface because you can hide bitter jealousy, you can hide selfish ambition in a public gathering. You know, you can come here and someone might ask you, how are you doing? How was your week? And even though you've had a terrible time at home, <laughs> a terrible time at work, and you're wrestling with all these emotions, inadequacies, you can say, hey, I'm, I, I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. James's concern is what's bubbling away in the heart. And I think this is really challenging for us to apply because we live in a world that actually affirms selfish ambition, if you think about it. Getting ahead, doing well, um, achieving a lot, victory. These are principles that we see in the workplace. We see these principles in social media. We see it in our relationships. Sometimes we see it even within our own families. You know, it's terrible when, when families uh, are split and encounter rifts because of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. I've seen it happen in my own family. And you'd think that it would be such a relief to come here, to come to church, and to leave all of that behind. But when you enter into church circles, a lot of the time you, can, like you find it right, right here amongst the people of God. And I want you to remember, James is writing, not to atheists or non-believers, James is writing to Christians. Scattered Christians who have been driven out of their cities, out of their homes, because of persecution. And, you know, you might think, oh, when 
Christians are suffering like that, when they get together in church, man, they're going to be so chummy, they're going to be so close, they're going to let down their guard. But no, even in that context, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, it's a reality. It's a reality to the churches back then, and it's still a reality for us today. These are really strong words. James is saying, this is how you diagnose hellish wisdom in yourself if you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. But James continues in verse 15, and he gives us what, what is almost like genetic, a genetic trait or genetic traits of hellish wisdom. And he says this wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Um, I think we've all been in situations where we'll try to talk to someone we care about, uh, and it's like talking to a brick wall. You just can't get through. It's extremely frustrating. Um, and yeah, those moments and those conversations are extremely frustrating, but I want you to imagine what it would be like if, if it was like that for you with a person you cared about for 10 years straight. Um, I was listening to the story of an ex-Mormon who became a Christian. Um, and if you don't know this already, Mormons are not Christians. They, they don't believe in the same Jesus that, that we do. Uh, they believe in a Jesus who is a created being and who is not God. Um, anyway, this ex-Mormon, after being, be becoming a Christian, um, he just had so much infectious energy to share the gospel, to share this Jesus with his family who were all still Mormons. And so for 10 years, he'd try to sit down with his brother every time they would meet and have a conversation. And he would say things like, hey, um, can we talk about Jesus? Because I've come to find that I, I don't think we've got the same picture of Jesus. Or he would say things like, I don't, look, I, I love you, but we need to talk because I don't think we believe in the same God. And for 10 years, he said it would just be like talking to a brick wall. Couldn't get through. And so one day he asked his brother, hey, look, if I was able to give you some kind of information or argument that could actually convince you that this is who Jesus really is, would you want to know that what you've been living for is wrong? And his brother said, no, I don't care. I'm not interested. And that was the point that he stopped talking to his brother. That was the point that he stopped trying and James says hellish wisdom is like that. It's earthly and unspiritual in how self-absorbed and how rooted it is in the now, in living life my own way. And it's demonic in how it denies the truth of God. If you remember uh, a few sermons back, um, James talked about uh, faith and how even the demons believe right, in, in God. But faith is not just mere knowledge. It's not just mere assent. It's a trust, right? It's a confession that God is king. And so in the same way, demonic wisdom, you can say that you believe in God. Yet if you don't, don't believe in him and trust in him, in him as king, it's actually a demonic kind of wisdom, a demonic kind of faith. So we've looked at the diagnosis and the genetic traits and what does that lead to in terms of this physical reaction James says it leads to every disorder and every vile practice 
It leads to instability in your relationships. Turbulence. It leads to shouts, fighting, chaos, you know, dysfunctional families of self-absorbed family members. Toxic environments in workplaces full of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And even in churches, churches that are full of cliques and schisms and offenses. Hellish wisdom. It's really intense stuff. Um, and I think, you know, for us, when we consider uh, what James is saying here, it's, it is pretty hard to swallow. <laughs> um, I'm sure a lot of us can recognize some of these diagnoses, some of these genetic traits within us. And James's purpose is not to condemn us, but James's purpose is to get us to be honest with ourselves, to actually acknowledge, hey, I'm not as wise as I thought I was. Maybe I'm living life as a fool. And that is why there's a flip side to all of this. <laughs> there's actually a heavenly wisdom, a wisdom that comes from above. And that's what James gives to us as he talks about this wisdom from above. Um, and the way that he talks about this is not in terms of medical uh, kind of framework, but in terms of a family framework, because that's what we are here at the church. And he talks about this wisdom from above as kind of like family features. So verse 17, if you look there with me, he says that it's pure. That means it's not contaminated. He says that it's peaceable. That means it's not picking fights at every opportunity, not seeking confrontation. He says that it's gentle. That means it's fair. It's moderate. doesn't insist on every little detail, getting it right. I like how one commentator put it uh, when he looked at this word for gentle, tolerantly, but not weakly receptive of the other person. James says it's open to reason, means you're ready to be persuaded, not just going to shut other people down, full of mercy and good fruits. You're graciously yielding wherever possible rather than standing on your own rights. Uh, impartial and sincere, very simply means you're unhypocritical. You're not two-faced. So pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial and sincere. These are the family features of a wisdom that comes from above. Um, you know, whenever we get together as a church, uh, especially after worship ends and we go downstairs and you see all the kids running around, I, I want to suggest a little game for you that you can try. As you look at our kids, try and pinpoint why are they the way they are? Why are they the way they are? Um, I've done this before, and so without naming any children in particular, because I don't want to get in trouble, um, I'll see a cheeky little smile on one child, and I'll say, wait a minute, I know that cheeky smile. I've seen that smile before on their dad. Or I'll recognize a tantrum. Wait a minute, I've seen that tantrum before. <laughs> um, you know, you can see these personality traits, not just physical appearance. And sometimes when the parent is right next to the child, you're like, oh, 
that's it right there. It's even clearer. And James is talking about family features, uh, a family resemblance. And we are children of God. We're members of God's family. The wisdom from above is going to produce in us, because it comes from above, our Father in heaven, certain family features. See, God is not particularly concerned with your qualifications. God is not particularly concerned with how much influence you have as a Christian. God is not particularly concerned with even what you can do for Him. God is particularly concerned with wisdom from above. Do you look like Him? Do you resemble Him? Do you have His family features? Purity, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, full of mercy and good works, sincerity. In daily life, right? Really, like at home, am I gentle? Am I peaceable with my spouse? With my own kids? With my parents? At work, am I unhypocritical and not two-faced? Here at church, and not just at church, but with my brothers and sisters, am I sincere? Do I really let them in and tell them how I'm doing, whether that's good or bad? Am I full of mercy? Am I willing to extend a hand when I see a brother or sister in need? Do you see this wisdom from above in your own life? That's the confronting question that James leaves us with. Um, if you've ever done some some gardening, and trust me, I have not. Uh, I am not a gardener, but my, my wife loves plants and she likes gardening. <laughs> so I looked it up on Google. Apparently what you do is you've got the soil and it's very, very important to have the right kind of soil. You can't just go outside and dig up some dirt and then put it back in a pot. You need the right kind of soil and you can't just throw seeds wherever in that soil or it won't grow. You need the right mixture and then when you throw the seeds in the right soil, the right mixture, it produces a beautiful tree. And this is how James finishes up in verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Why does he end like this after talking about wisdom? Well, his point is this. True wisdom, it grows. True wisdom grows. See, this is not just about James saying, are you wise or are you a fool? This is James saying, are you growing in wisdom? Sure, you may have areas of your life that are foolish, but are you growing in wisdom? Are you growing in righteousness? See, the seed here is the wisdom that comes from above. That's what goes in the soil, but the soil is peace, right? That's what James says. It's us making peace as we live in peace, not beating each other up, and then, that, and then that wisdom will grow to become a harvest of righteousness. Sounds beautiful. So how do we do this? How do we do this? I've got two uh, points of application for you today. The first one is this. We ask God for the wisdom that comes from above in faith. We ask God for the wisdom that comes from above in faith. It sounds so simple, but this is actually... It's an instruction that James gives to us at the very start of this letter. Interesting that he would 
put it at the start and then unpack it here. In chapter 1, verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wow. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. No conditions, no, I'm going to take it back, and it will be given him. You need wisdom. First of all, ask God for wisdom in faith. Recognize that sin makes us fools. Even if you have all the knowledge and all the techniques and all the experience and you think you're so much more knowledgeable and you, you're aware of the situation and of what's really going on, and you know what's right and what's wrong? Sin makes us fools. Because all of the knowledge and experience in the world that you have cannot lead to a life in which you are really living pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. These qualities, these family features that seem so unattainable, they feel like that for a reason because we can't attain them on our own. Sin makes us fools. The wisdom that comes from above is a gift. And we're told we can ask for it. So let me ask you, when is the last time you genuinely came to God and said, sin is making me a fool. I can't, I can't do this. I can't figure this out. I can't just get over this. Um, I, I need wisdom. I need wisdom from above. When is the last time that you did that? It says that when we ask God for wisdom in faith, He gives generously, without reproach. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. We make peace with one another. How do you do that? How do you do that? So, you know, um, especially in situations where you don't want to, especially in conflicts where the other person has riled you up in the wrong way? How do you make peace with each other? What enables us to stop beating each other up? What enables us to stop thinking about how offended we are towards the other person and to make peace? It's not just swallowing your pride. It's not just calming down and having self-control. How do you make peace with someone you're so angry at? There's only one way. You do it by looking at Jesus. You look at someone else who had every reason to be angry at you, to be frustrated at you, to hate you, and yet he made peace with you. Because what do you see when you look at Jesus? Was there any bit of jealousy there? No, he was he was not envious. Was there any selfish ambition there? No. It says he didn't, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. He emptied himself and died on a cross. Was there any disorder with Jesus? No, he was stable. He was always walking with God the Father. Was he pure? Yes, he knew no sin. Was he peaceable? Yes, he said, Father, forgive them. 
for they don't know what they're doing. Was he open to reason? Yes, he was open to reason. He wasn't a pushover. He had conversations and dialogue and debates with people, but he was open to reason. You know, someone who came up to him and says, hey, you say I need faith? Well, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Was he full of mercy and good fruits? Yes. So many times it says when he looked at the crowd, he had compassion upon them. Was he impartial? Yes. He spoke to Pharisees, Nicodemus. He spoke to the woman at the well, an outcast, to tax collectors, to prostitutes. Was he sincere? Yes, he always did what he said he would, even when it was extremely hard, even when he was walking towards death on a cross. When we look at Jesus and what he did to make peace with us, what he did to make peace with you, when you're far away from him, when you are his enemy, when you get to that point where you want to make peace or you kind of know that you should, but it's hard, when you look at him and when you see how gracious he is, how he went to these lengths, he went to the cross to make peace with you. How can you stay there and say, I'm not going to make peace with this person? No, actually, if you really look at him on the cross, it propels you towards peacemaking with the other person. So you ask for wisdom from God, the wisdom that comes from above, and then you look at Jesus and you make peace with each other. And that is what a spiritual family is. That's, that's what the church is. It's a family of wise people. doesn't mean you're experienced and you're knowledgeable. doesn't mean you're sage. doesn't even mean that you're, you have to be old. A spiritual family of wise people are people who have changed lives, who show the world what God is really like. It's a foretaste of the heavenly family that we'll all be a part of one day when Jesus receives his church home. I need wisdom in my life. Now, there are so many things, not, not that I just don't know. I think I know a lot of things, and I, I'm sure you guys do as well. You know what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But so often I find myself unable to, to live it out. Wisdom is a life transformed. It's, it's a life lived out. That's what the wisdom from above is. If we ask God for that wisdom, he'll give it to us. If we look at Christ on the cross, it'll change us. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just thank you for this book of James. Uh, it's such an encouraging book for us. Um, and just struck by how much um, I know I need wisdom in my life, not just to know what to do and how to make good decisions, but uh, to change and to to have a heart that is uh, peaceable and pure and gentle and open to reason. Um, and I'm sure my brothers and sisters here uh, 
agree and can relate and they need that same heart. They need that same wisdom, the wisdom that leads to a life transformed. And so, Lord, I ask for wisdom for your church. I ask that you would give us the wisdom that comes from above. And at the same time, uh, when we find it difficult to make peace with each other, to make peace in our homes, to make peace in our workplace, uh, direct our eyes just calmly and gently to look upon uh, the cross of Christ. Uh, and I, I really do believe that that will transform us. So I thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.